Good morning. Yes. Okay. Uh, hopefully, oh, I guess I should say this for the record. Uh, in case you're wondering, no, my sermon will not be fire and brimstone today. I think it is just the lack of air conditioning right now that is making us sweat. So, uh, yes, there we go. Okay, moving on. Hopefully, you saw the email. Uh, if you are part of Cornerstone, you saw the email. And know that this week is beginning a summer uh, sermon series on the church. So therefore, over the next few months, we're going to examine mainly the New Testament and the doctrines or teachings about the church in the Bible. As a preaching side note, as we've gone through the book of Philippians and a few Trinitarian sermons, I'm typically an 80% expositional preacher and about 20% topical throughout a year, which means 80% of the year we'll go through a book of the Bible Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, well, passage by passage, chapter by chapter. But the other 20%, give or take, will look at a specific topic or a specific doctrine that we, as the elders here at Cornerstone, feel would benefit all of us and serve us all well. And we believe a refresher on the doctrine of the church would benefit every single one of us. So the topics for our sermon series is who and what is the church, that'll be today, baptism and the Lord's Supper will be next week, depending on when the baby comes, or if the baby comes, Uh, number three, what is the church called to do, number four, the purity of the church, number five, members serving in the local church, number six, deacon slash deaconesses. Number seven, elders. Today, we're going to look at topic one, who and what is the church? First, let's just start with a basic biblical definition of the church. The Greek word used in the New Testament for church is ekklesia, which means most of the time assembly, congregation, or gathering. It's where we get the term ecclesiology from, which means to study the church or study of the church. If you're anything like me, don't feel bad because I thought ecclesiology meant the study of Ecclesiastes for years. And unfortunately, for the first couple years of seminary, I let that be known to a lot of people. So it is not. It is not the study of Ecclesiastes. It is the study of the church, ecclesia. So that's where that comes from. And that's what we're going to do for the summer. We're going to study the biblical, qualify, biblical doctrine and DNA of the church. We have to qualify the biblical doctrine because as a minister of God's word and as the people of God, we should not be interested in any other perspective about who the church is, what the church is, or how the church of Jesus Christ is called to function, other than what the Word of God tells us and teaches us. Yes, the letters in the New Testament, 
They were written to a particular people of a particular time. But the apostles also commanded within these very letters that they wrote that the recipients of the letters would pass them on to the other churches. It's the faith once delivered to the saints. And the word of God still speaks. Therefore, the goal of this ecclesiological series is to see what does the Bible have to say about the church of Jesus Christ? The application of the series, at Leavenworth, they, at the Sound of Music last night, they told us to, well, they sung that we should silence our phones, so I'm not going to sing it, but if you want to silence your phone, you're good. Our application for the series this summer is to respond. The app, the app, well, maybe it's just agreeing with me. The application of our faith is always to respond to God's promises and God's word. And, and in this series, it's to respond to the word of God by closely patterning ourselves after the examples of the church within the New Testament. And just as an encouragement to Cornerstone, I think we're a very healthy congregation, which is modeled after the New Testament churches. There's no reason we cannot come together, examine the scriptures together, and see if we have any blind spots, corporately or individually. There's no reason we cannot grow even further as a local body of Christ. Let me, let me open up this series in sermon and prayer. Heavenly Father, God, when we turn to uh, your prophet Hosea and Hosea 2, there's a proclamation that's coming and says in verse 16, chapter 2, in that day declares you, you will call us, well, we will call you our husband. You will make a covenant for us. You will make us lie down in safety. You will be betrothed to us forever and we will be betrothed to you We will be betrothed in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. You will betroth us in, in faithfulness, and us in faithfulness to you, and we shall know that you are the Lord. And you say that you will have mercy on no mercy. And you will say to those who are not your people, you are my people and we shall say, you are our God. And Lord, we believe that your son, Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, sinless, came to this earth, Lord, to inaugurate this covenant that Hosea is talking about, that Jeremiah talked about, that Ezekiel and the prophets talked about, that you promised, and he inaugurated it, Lord. This is death and resurrection and ascension. And we await his return, even as we take the Lord's Supper today, as he commanded us to. And God, we pray that we would recognize today and through this series that we are the people that you have called out of darkness into the light through regeneration of the Holy Spirit 
and belief and trust that our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Help us to unite as one church and to grow as a united body of Christ that displays your glory in this community and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Let's start with the who. Who is the church? The 1861 Swedish Baptist Confession of Faith says, We believe that a true Christian church is a union of believing and baptized Christians who have covenanted to strive to keep all that Christ has commanded, to sustain public worship under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to choose among them shepherds or overseers and deacons, to administer baptism and the Lord's Supper, to practice Christian church discipline, to promote godliness and brotherly love, and to contribute to the general spread of the gospel, also that every such church is an independent body, free in its relation to other Christian churches and acknowledging Christ only as its head. Now we're non-denominational, and that's from the Baptist Convention, the Sweden Baptist Confession of Faith in 1861. But that's a pretty solid definition. So we do baptize believers here, but that's next week's sermon, so we're just going to move on from that. But if you want to understand pretty much where the, the series is going... This is a great place to look to understand that a New Testament church has these specific marks in it. We're going to walk that out through this summer. So uh, one disclaimer, throughout the sermon series, we will reference back and forth between the universal church, which is every Christian redeemed by Christ all over the world, and the local church, which is each individual gathering of Christians in their own community. So if you're saved, you are part of the universal church. But if you're part of Cornerstone, then Cornerstone is your local church. First things first, we should address, is that you must be a Christian in order to be the church. Which brings us to our first point, the church is redeemed. And the church is redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Acts 20, 28. Luke writes, pay careful attention to yourselves. Well, actually, I think Paul said it. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. For you know that you were redeemed... From your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? 
You're not your own. You were bought at a price. The cost was the blood of Jesus, right? And maybe you've heard someone say, uh, or multiple people say before, I don't go to church because I know too many Christians. Or, uh, I'd become a Christian, but I, I knew too many of them. Or as Gandhi famously stated, if it weren't for Christians, I'd become one. These types of comments are implying that we as Christians are hypocritical. Because we sin just like they do, and therefore there's no difference between us. There's a problem in that thought process, though, and the problem in their way of thinking is that they, they, they put too much stock of Christianity in, in, in knowing Christians, and they undervalue knowing God and their status before him. Because if they understood at least what the Word of God says, who God is, in light of who they are in relationship to him, they wouldn't care what every other Christian is doing or has done. Instead, they would tremble at their own sin instead of using ours as an excuse not to believe in Christ. We sang it in a song. I forget which song, but it says, I confess thy judgments just what God says about us as sinners is just. He's right. What he says about them as sinners is also true and just. Mistakenly, they think that the primary message of the church is simply just belaboring people about sin. That's not the primary message of the church. Our message, or the church's message, is yes, we are similar in that we're both sinners. But the difference between us, and there is a difference, and it's a significant one. The difference between us is that we believe Christ was crucified for our sins. That's our message. That's our primary message. The church is not a light to the community that says, be more like us. Rather, the church is to be a light and a beacon into the community that says, believe in the one who is nothing like us and yet still willingly died for our sins. The point is, you don't become the church by cleaning up your life, right? Nor do you become the church by joining us for worship every Sunday morning. You don't become the church by any spiritual discipline, such as reading the Bible or praying or giving or serving, making coffee. I mean, I do care, but personally, I don't care if you never miss a Sunday and come faithfully the rest of your life. The only way that you become part of the church is by believing and responding in repentance to the reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, was crucified for your sins. 
rose from the dead and will return from the throne he ascended to. In short, you become a Christian and you become part of the church the moment you believe your sins have been washed in the blood of our Savior. That's what ultimately sets us apart from those outside these walls. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And yes, we should look different than the community that we live in who aren't believers, who aren't the church. But our boast is not in ourselves. We, our boast isn't even in our righteous acts that we claim in the name of Jesus that we should be doing. Our boast is in the name of Jesus and our boast is in him alone. Our boast is in the Lamb of God who died and rose again. That's been the process of becoming the church since the birth of the church in Acts 2 that we celebrated on Pentecost. Starting in verse 37, when they heard this, heard what? If you go back to verse 23 in Acts 2, Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. And Peter preaches, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. When they heard that. And then Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when they heard that, verse 37 says, that they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter's response is the same that we preached this morning. Repent and be baptized. Each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord God will call. With many other words, Peter testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. That has not changed. Verse 40 is still applicable today. Be saved from this corrupt generation. Verse 41, So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They accepted the message Peter preached. They responded by turning from their sin through repentance and baptism. Now we're going to get into this topic in a few weeks from now, but now why do we preach from the Word of God every Sunday morning? Why do we preach the Word of God every Sunday morning? Because the church was regenerated, was born by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's Word. Which means, when Christ crucified is preached, God saves people. And then look at verse 41. Once saved, they were baptized. And then they were added to the church. They were added to the number, to the church. Some manuscripts actually say church. 
And if you go to, I don't have it up there, I'm sorry. Well, actually, I do. Verse 46. And afterward, so after they believed Peter's message, and after they repented, after they were baptized, and added to the church, it says, and then in verse 46, those who were baptized believers began to gather together, right? Every day, which we're not called every day, wouldn't be a bad thing. Every day they devoted themselves to what? To meeting together. That brings us to point two. The church is a gathering, which by definition, that's what the church means, to assemble. It means to, to be a congregation, an assembly, a gathering. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, the author says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to, we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up, meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And for years, I have said that I have, I have two main sources that I get information from. Number one is the Bible. Number two is Google. <laughs> this is application. Be aware, beware of theological answers on Google. For instance, I, I just Googled, I was just interested to see what, what, what it says if I type in what is a church, and the top listed definition was a building used for public Christian worship. To be fair to Google, we do use the term church as slang for the place that we go to on Sundays. That's, that's true. We do. But biblically speaking, while the church may be called the household of God at times, the church is not a building, right? The church is the people who meet together in a building or a member's home or at a member's flat doesn't matter where they meet because in the new testament we see they met in many different places what's vital in the church it's it's not where they meet it's that they meet the church is an assembly of people we're a gathering we can't be the church if we don't gather together An implication if being the church does mean we're called to gather together, how can we identify as part of the church if we choose to remain isolated from it? Huh. I don't think the Bible says that we can. Now, there are those who make the argument that they're part of the universal church, and therefore, they're free to go into any church without ever committing themselves to one specific local church. And they are part of the universal church. That's, that's true. But not committing to a local church in the community that you live in, that's just absolutely foreign to the New Testament. You don't see that type of Christianity anywhere practiced in the New Testament. Every church is local. 
Every epistle that Paul writes to is a church in specific locations, as well as the churches that Jesus addresses, the seven churches Jesus addresses in Revelation 2 through 3, are what? Particular churches in particular locations. We met with the, uh, the Naz church, I'm sorry, Nazarene church last week, right? But if somebody was, if the Apostle Paul was alive today and wrote Cornerstone a letter, that letter's for us, right? Specifically written to Cornerstone. Now maybe he says, share that with the Naz church. But Paul was addressing specific churches in specific locations with specific issues. Sure, pastor, but the Bible doesn't say that we have to be part of a local church. It doesn't use that verbatim. That's true. But it does say, and it does teach, to take the Lord's Supper with your church. And it even matters how we take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner with our church. It does say submit to the elders of your church. It does say be accountable to your church, and it does say to hold those accountable in your church. So if you're not part of a local church, who are you taking communion with on a regular basis? Which elders are you called to submit to? Maybe, I don't know if it's more importantly, but who are you caring for? If you're not caring for one specific set of people, and, and, and uh, who's caring for you? Who's sharing your life with you right now that knows your burdens, that you're meeting with, that's praying with you? I know there's brokenness in our congregation, whether or not we're healthy or not. Who are you meeting with? Loved ones, you and I are meant to commit our lives and our families or our, as individuals to a community of believers, a new covenant community who is a local assembly of Christians who proclaim the gospel to one another, who affirm our, our, uh, our, our testimonies of faith in Christ to one another. We remind each other of the gospel Every time we baptize someone, we remind them of the gospel. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remind them of the gospel. Every Sunday morning we preach, we remind one another of the gospel. Sunday morning. Sunday morning is important. It's one specific day that we as Christians are called to gather together. It's the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week that the church has been meeting on since first century A.D. We see that in the New Testament, if you want to reference it, I don't have it on the screen, but Acts 20, verse 7, says, On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul, the apostle, talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. You'll be out of here in like 20 minutes. Says You already knew where I was going with that one. Uh. So we see that in the New Testament. And also we see in early church history. The Didache, teaching of the 12, which I want to say is actually 12 apostles. They just call it that. And early church father, Justin Martyr. In both of those writings, the Didache and in Martyr's writings, we have two pieces of literature 
still preserved from 2nd century A.D. Some people will say Didache's 1st century, but 2nd century A.D. is safe, which demonstrate and say that the church met on Sunday. That day has been designated as the Lord's Day. Mainly because Sunday was the day that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. If you're familiar with Tom Rayner, he said, Though we can't prove this was the reason Sunday worship was established, early Christians did connect gathering on the first day of the week with the Lord's resurrection. And early church history attest to this as well. I'm certain he's probably referencing the Didache and Justin Martyr. Implication. Why does any of that matter? Sunday doesn't belong to you. Sunday doesn't belong to us. It's not, it's, it's not it, it's individuals. It's not our day. It belongs to the Lord. Right? That's why it's called the Lord's Day. I'm not a Sabbatarian, which, which is the belief that Sunday has replaced Saturday as the Sabbath. And therefore on Sunday, just like they couldn't work in the Old Covenant Sabbath, now we can't work on Sunday. I don't, or, or we can't even do anything fun or that we enjoy. I, I don't believe that carries over one for one. The Bible teaches that Christ is our Sabbath rest, and we find fulfillment of that rest in Him. But that doesn't free us from the command to gather together on the Lord's day, which means you're free to go hiking, you're free to go skiing, you're free to have a picnic, paddleboard, whatever you want. But you aren't free to replace worshiping with the church on the Lord's Day with any of those activities. Corporate worship, loved one, is the first fruit of the first day of the week. It is our first fruit for the first day of the week. So if I see you skiing today, well, that's not going to happen. Water skiing today, that's absolutely fine, right? If you have to work after this, it's absolutely fine. In fact, since they're not here and they've already moved on, I'll use them as an illustration. Doug and Daniela, right? While they were here working at the KOA, they didn't miss one single Sunday. They came faithfully every single Sunday. And they were sad because they couldn't stay afterward because they had to immediately go to work for the rest of the day. But it was the Lord's day. And we all saw that that was a faithful testimony of them. And it was encouraging to us, even though they weren't members here, and even though we knew they were leaving. Now, I do need to make a couple qualifications, because I'm, I'm not saying you cannot go on vacation or ever miss a Sunday. <laughs> like you're stuck in the hospital, and you're telling your doctor, Pastor said, I got to come. You got to let me loose. No, that's, that's not... God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Or that you better come to worship if you have COVID in order to be faithful. Or anything along those lines. The author of Hebrews doesn't tell us 
that we cannot miss a worship service or even two worship services of the Lord's day. What he does say is don't make it a habit, right? Don't make it a habit of neglecting to meet together. Verse 25, sorry, CSB. I think it says it better in the ESV. And over the years, I've heard individuals say, but I can do everything by myself that people who go to church do on Sunday. Whatever you do at church, I can do by myself at home, on the farm, wherever I'm at. I can sing, I can pray, I can listen to a sermon, etc. That's true. You can. You can do all those things. But from this passage in Hebrews, I can note two things we can't do that the others who meet together can do. Number one, the text says, and let us encourage one another. You can't encourage us on a Sunday morning when we don't know why you're not here. In fact, when it's slim pickings, it's discouraging, and you don't know where everyone is. He says, let us encourage, but encouraging one another. How can you serve this church? Well, in one way, show up. Just be faithful to come and worship God with your church. Number two to the response, well, I can do anything you guys do. And I think it's maybe even more significant that number one, well, I can name another thing you can't do. You can't be obedient to the Lord. Because God says that we should meet together and you can't be obedient to the Lord if you're not meeting together and gathering for worship. And the point is not to guilt trip you. And, and I'm not, I have nobody in mind here. My, it's, my, my question, loved one, is... And maybe the, the heart or the root of the issue is... It's not why aren't you here... I'm more interested in why you don't want to be here. What have you got going on in your life that deserves greater worship than the God who created you and who redeemed you from the penalty of your sins? Maybe this is out of context, but when Jesus taught, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood and everybody who was listening scattered he looked at his disciples and I think you know and he said do you want to leave too Peter says where will we go where else can we go you have the words of eternal life Jesus you are the only one with the words of eternal life if that's true if Jesus is why are so many Christians finding other places to go and other things to do instead of drawing near to him. On the Lord's day, the local church isn't called to scatter. It is called to gather. Number three, the church is the body of Christ. The Bible gives us metaphors for the church. 
They're not random or meant to simply be an eloquent, an eloquent description. The New Testament refers to the church as the body of Christ, uh, the bride of Christ, the household of God, the temple of God. They're given to us because we are meant to learn from these analogies or, and illustrations so that we may live in a way in a community that represents these metaphors best. So if we look at Romans 12, 4 through 5, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, You are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Ephesians 4, 12, Equip the saints for the works of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, his body, so the church is his body, and is himself its savior. Ephesians 5.30, we are members of his body, of Christ's body. Now what is the point of the Apostle Paul belaboring the idea that the church is the body of Christ? What implications can we take away from that? We're not going to go through every metaphor today. We're going to just do the body of Christ, and we'll conclude with the bride of Christ. But, but what implications? Why are we called a body of Christ? What can we take away from that? Number one, Ephesians 5, right? Christ is the head of the body, right? Which means he is the head of the church. He has absolute authority over us, over the church, over every Christian. He governs his body, he leads his body, he rules his body, he reigns over the church with the word of God. Or as John Stott famously said, Scripture is the royal scepter by which King Jesus rules his church. It's good. I couldn't say any better, so I just quote him. In other words, the church has been handed the Old Testament and the apostolic teachings of the New Testament in order to obey our king. The Bible is the royal edict given by the king to his people. We're his people. Therefore, we owe him our allegiance. So to call Christ Lord, to call Christ King of Kings, and yet willingly continue to defy his royal law, it's to commit treason against the king. He's the head. He determines what we do. How we act. Hopefully what we worship or who we worship. Number two. A little less intimidating. Every local church is meant to see themselves as individual members or parts of a corporate body. One of us is the arm. The other is the foot, the other the hand, and so on and so on. Yet while the word says, while we have different functions, all are useful and needed in order to function as one body. And that reality is meant to encourage you and me to spur us on to good works. To say, you're needed here just as much as I am. Especially for the person that says, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a deacon, I'm not an elder, 
I don't lead worship musically. I'm really not needed. I don't teach Sunday school. I don't teach children Sunday school. I'll just sit back and let everyone else just you know, do everything. What do they even need me for? Maybe you are just a foot. Maybe you are a hand, whatever body part. You're not the head. We're not the head. Just pick a body part. Maybe you're the foot. What happens when a foot doesn't move for a long period of time? It goes numb, right? And it affects the rest of the body. If you've ever had a seriously numb foot that even led to that stinging pain, then you know it's hot. You can't move your body if the foot is numb, right? One individual member of a body affects the entire body. And I can bring that home with another one because the reason I'm wearing chacos this morning is because I pulled a hangnail. I know you said don't be. I'm not going to try to be, babe. And oh my goodness, does it hurt so bad. I went to put on shoes this morning, and I couldn't even wear them, so I had to put these on, because it's the only thing that I wasn't limping in, which says what? Forget the foot. One little toe, when it's hurting, that means the whole body is hurting, right? It affects the whole body. Loved one, if you're part of the church and you're hurting, we should be hurting with you, right? If, 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 and when it heals and it rejoices... My body is going to rejoice together, and we should be rejoicing together, but just one little part of the body affects the entire body. See, it wasn't that bad. I guess, I suppose you're an arm that, that's just detached from the body. What does that make it? What does that make you? An amputee, Right? A body can function without an arm, but an arm cannot function that's unattached from the body. What can an arm do that's not attached? Nothing. You see, understanding the basic anatomy of the body, which that's about as far as I go, but it helps us convey to us the importance of our connection to the local church. It helps us understand the importance of us as individual members and it, it shows us the detriment to the body as a whole when it loses one of its limbs. We're the body. He's the head. I want to conclude just with the church is the bride of Christ. I'm quite confident you understand this metaphor. So rather than going into more detail as we did the body of Christ, I just want to conclude with considering what the metaphor, bride of Christ, consider what that means and that the love that the bridegroom has for his bride. If you're somewhat familiar with the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, Hopefully you'll recall that God called the prophet to marry a harlot named Gomer. And his relationship with Gomer, who was unfaithful to him in marriage, just unfaithful, it's debated, was she unfaithful before or in? We know she was an adulteress. But that relationship between Hosea and Gomer was a picture for the relationship between an unfaithful Israel, God's people, and to God. 
In chapter 3, after Gomer had been, uh, either had to pay back the men she was adulterous with or was sold into slavery. And there was nothing left of her that anybody would ever want. Who was there to purchase her? Hosea. Hosea was there. And that was a picture that one day God would forgive Israel and our unfaithfulness too. I remember listening to a sermon by John MacArthur about the grace shown uh, to Gomer by her husband Hosea. And, and he talked about the heartbreaking life as a husband or a wife, but in this particular case, husband, that Hosea had to endure from the recklessness of Gomer's adultery and adulterous living. And, and, and MacArthur proposed the question, well, he says, but Hosea, he didn't just take her back, he purchased her. He purchased her. He paid her debt to get her back. And he says, how can someone, how can a husband who has had those types of sins committed against him purchase his wife back? And he said, because Hosea was a man whose heart had been changed by God. We can extend that story just a bit further in closing because, loved ones, the story is a picture of Christ's love toward us. We were the harlots. We were the adulterous ones. We were the slaves. We were the ones who continually committed spiritual adultery against our maker. We're the ones who, who were so tainted with sin that there was no value left in us whatsoever. We stood on a stage like Gomer to be sold into an auction to the lowest bidder. And with that grotesque stench and undesirable garments stained with sin and sold with filth, we were just left there in darkness without anyone desiring to buy our freedom. Except one. There stood one man, in spite of our adulterous deeds, not only was willing to forgive us, but he was also willing to lay down his life for us and pay our debt in full. And when he rose from the grave, came to each and every one of us who believe and said, you're mine. I died for you and I redeemed you and you have nothing to fear any longer. You belong to me now. The church belongs to Jesus Christ and there's nothing that's going to take us from him. Therefore, a man shall Leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. <laughs> what, Paul? The Father chose you for the Son, and with the blood of his Son, he made you fit to be his bride. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, uh, there's, there's a lot to go into 
and the doctrine of the church, Lord. And God, I pray that as, as we begin to go into this series, Lord, and search your word, God, that, that we would even do it on our own time and not just Sunday morning and see what does Christ call us to do as his, as his body, as his bride, as the temple of the living God. What are we called to do? What does it mean to follow Christ as Lord? What does it mean to be, commit myself and my family to a local church? What would that look like? What would you have me do? God, I pray that we would commit our time to seeking you out for these answers. In Christ's name, amen.